Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Back on Carolina Newsmakers, John Hood is with us. He's the president of the Don William Pope Foundation, has been on our program a number of times. I don't know how many times, dozens, as a matter of fact. And we always enjoy John's view on what's happening. And right now, John, I want to turn to talking about uh, our uh, economy here at home. Uh, the the uh, ugly word of inflation has been mentioned dozens of times recently in the news, and inflation is one of the the hardest uh, of the economic situations to control. We've got that. That means interest rates are probably going up, and it's all happening in an election year. So uh, what's your take on the economy, inflation, and how it's going to affect the uh, fall elections? The rampant inflation that we're experiencing now is essentially the revenge of the nerds <laughs> because uh, for so long nerds and i include myself in that description kept saying you know we can't just spend recklessly have the federal government spend any, however much money we want to spend and not cover it with taxes because we're just going to borrow the money we can't do that forever we can't just borrow money forever because it's going to ultimately result in inflation and we were wrong until we were right, which is the way predictions work. Um, inflation is really simply too much money chasing too few goods and services. Now, there's lots of potential causes that, you know, arguably the most important is that first part, uh, too much money. It's about the money supply. If you are keeping interest rates artificially low, in other words, monetizing federal spending, turning it into, into debt, uh, leaning on the accelerator in that sense, then eventually you're going to end up with inflation is the argument because there'll be too much money chasing uh, production, even when it's a normal production year. When goods and services are being produced at a reasonable level, it's just too much money. The, the economy has been inflated by too much money. I think that's true. And I also think that there is a constriction on the other side, which is supply. It, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods and services. The problem is we're having trouble producing adequate goods and services that people want. Uh, that's partly a, a short-term consequence of supply chain problems and COVID-related aftermath, as the president correctly observes. That's part of the problem. Some of the problem is longer-term labor market uh, deficiencies. We have people staying out of the labor market who are in the prime working age of life. And uh, that was already going down before COVID. And it, we have certainly not recovered back from COVID, the, the share of our labor force, potential labor force that's actually working or looking for a job. So we have, and you, you can tell if you go to a restaurant or you go to a store, my wife and I went to a restaurant last night. And as we did so, this restaurant fortunately had enough help and we were served pretty quickly. But next door was a furniture store. It was part of a chain and this furniture store was closed. And the sign said, closed due to staffing shortages, you know, and they gave another uh, pretty far away location. If you really wanted to buy a chase lounge, go across town where they had enough employees to actually take your order, you know, and show you the chair. Uh, this is going on in all sorts of sectors. And so if you combine too much money, Fed was had an easy money policy for too long, in my opinion, and all these constrictions on the supply of goods and services, you end up with rampant inflation. That's what we had in the 1970s. 
that's what we have today. It is it is kind of it's not just a revenge of the inflation nerds. It's also, you know, we're back to the disco era. Congratulations. We have uh, political problems. We have lack of confidence in government. We have a disastrous foreign policy decision, in this case, withdrawing from Afghanistan. And we have rampant inflation. Uh, I don't think the Bee Gees are going to go on a tour because I think that only one of them is still with us. But other than that, it feels a lot like the 1970s. And of course, the supply chain situation is worse because uh, in many sections of the of the world where, where we're waiting on parts, they're basically shut down due to COVID. And so that's yes, I mean, obviously is- COVID is a big part. So that's why I gave the president some credit on that. He's right. That, that there are real supply chain problems, supply shocks that COVID created. They were deep. Some of them have recovered. We've recovered from some of them. We haven't. That's all true. The problem is that we added to that way too much federal, quote, rescue funds that really weren't needed for rescue. We borrowed a tremendous amount of money to float a lot of federal dollars down into states and localities where it's not being spent in any useful way in many cases. And so it, there is something to the president's excuse. It just doesn't take you very far. He's also handled it poorly. Mike Walden. So, but so have congresses of both parties for many years. Mike Walden, who was on our program last week, is forecasting a recession, a mild recession, yeah. probably beginning in the fourth quarter of this year and the first quarter of next year. He doesn't think it's going to be very severe nor longstanding, but uh, – that's one of the few things that will turn inflation around is a, a, is a recession. Well, another so, way to uh, think about it is that what is required to combat inflation, which is to raise interest rates. I'm sure yeah. that's what Mike was getting at, is that because you have yes. to raise interest rates to combat inflation, that is going to change the risk calculus and certain investments become unprofitable. You have to liquidate investment, and that leads to a recession. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, uh, we've got all these announcements about new plants and new uh, jobs being created in the state of North Carolina. North Carolina uh, is uh, apparently still looking for a very exciting economy for the next two years or so. Uh, where, where are all the jobs going to come from? I mean, we've got an automobile plant coming in saying they're going to work 7,000 people, and we're already having a job shortage. How are we going to solve that, John? Well, it's important to remember that when you hear 2,000 jobs here, 7,000 jobs there, it's not like three months from now. It's not even next year. It's going to be over time. Yeah, uh, so well, when, these things, yeah. when these plants get built and when they get fully built and staffed, I mean, it's going to be actually years away. And so there's enough time for the prospect of these jobs and the rising wages that will happen as employers are competing for labor. It, it will draw more people in, into North Carolina to work. It will draw more people from the sidelines into the labor force but maybe not enough. And that's a legitimate concern. Some of these industrial uh, plants and economic development uh, announcements may end up being a lot more show than real. I don't mean that there's any deceit involved, though sometimes that happens with economic development uh, announcements. But in this case, I think everybody can be absolutely telling the truth as they understand it. And it doesn't pan out in part because they can't get adequate labor, or they may find out if there's a recession and the con- and then the, re- the recovery from the recession is sort of weak, then the de- demand may not justify the original investment they were going to make. So we'll have to see. But look, North Carolina comparatively is doing well. 
But that doesn't mean we wouldn't go through a recession if the rest of the country goes through a recession. We certainly will. Economically, is North Carolina state government ready for a recession? We're probably more ready for a recession right now in North Carolina today than we've ever been in the history of our state. That doesn't mean it'll be fun. It'll be uncomfortable. But we have so much money in uh, savings, not just in the official rainy day fund, but also just in, in the fund balance, general fund balance that wasn't spent the last year or two. Um, and we have, we have a lot more cushion built in. And so when there's a recession, we won't have to have the kind of precipitous, steep spending cuts that sometimes weak, worsens the effects of recessions on, on labor markets and on household incomes and, and spending, because we'll be able to use some savings to keep some public, for example, uh, public employees and vendors employed rather than laying them off, which is what happens when you cut spending, of course. Um, so we'll be able to do that. Uh, we won't be at a place where uh, we will be already relatively high tax rates and we're raising them again to cover a budget deficit. I don't think that's going to happen because we've cut taxes and we've saved enough money to tide us over during a, a, a reasonably, a, you know, sort of a, moder- a mild to moderate recession we can handle pretty well. So I think we're in great shape, but no one should want to have to do this. <laughs> but uh, we have gone, as you may well remember, Don, uh, in previous cycles, going back into the 80s, we've had recessions and North Carolina's state government was woefully un- underprepared and had very little money saved and had to do things like raise taxes and drastically cut spending in the middle of a recession. And that was that was uh, unwise. It was it, that's what needed to be done at that time. But we shouldn't have gotten there in the first place. There should have been more careful discipline on spending when times were good. One of the things that does bother me a little bit is all these projects that are already on the working uh, agenda are coming in so much higher than the anticipated cost. How are we going to cover that? Well, it is a problem because construction delays caused by a variety of things, access to supplies, access to labor, uh, have pushed projects out. It's increased the cost of projects. This is happening in the public and private sectors. And... I was just at a meeting with some folks in the construction trades where they were talking about this. And in the short term, the, the remedies aren't great. In the long term, we've got to figure out ways to encourage young people to go into the construction trades, making clear to them that they can make really good money not having to go get a four-year degree, uh, but learning how to do various trades, brick masonry and uh, housing construction and industrial construction, operating heavy machinery welding, a lot of these kinds of, of roles that make really good money, including just the transportation part. Did you see that Amazon had to raise its truck driver salaries up into the six figures to get people to take truck driving jobs? Uh, I thought about it. Uh, I could listen to a lot of radio, Dodd, if I was driving trucks around, but I decided I don't, I don't know that that's really for me. But I mean, that the if you're in this, these fields and you're willing to do the work, you're, you're making pretty good money. The problem is there aren't enough people coming into the field, and that's why we're getting rising costs and, and, and much greater delays. Of course, uh, rising salaries means more income tax for both the federal government and state government, so that's not necessarily bad, but it does put uh, strain on the uh, price of goods and services, uh, and uh, it, everything has to be passed on. So it's... Uh, it is a real concern of mine of, because I heard of one project that's coming in at 
forty percent over what was estimated last year. Yes. I also talked yes. to a uh, city manager in my hometown of Bessemer City. Uh, actually, it was the assistant city manager, and said they've ordered a piece of equipment, sort of a specialized piece of equipment, but it's a large purchase. And they were told the delivery would be in fifteen months. My goodness, fifteen months. Yeah, that's a long I mean, way just, out. Yeah, this is not not a practical, not a practice. This is not a sustainable situation. So how long do you think we're going to be living with this this uh, supply chain labor shortage uh, situation? On the labor shortage, done. I'll say this. I, I didn't really fully appreciate this until I read some recent studies. I'm just that nerdy. I read peer-reviewed studies, you know, labor markets. Came across a study that estimated that as much as a fourth, maybe, maybe more of the decline in labor force participation that we've experienced is because of drug and alcohol abuse. It, and, and it was obviously exacerbated by, by COVID, people who were literally isolated from everybody else. And the one thing that killed the pain was to drink too much or to do opioids or whatever. Um, even though times are better, even though the labor market is tightened so much that you can make really good money, some folks who should be working or not because they simply can't pass the drug test or uh, they just aren't in a place where they could handle a job, even if they could fake the drug test. I mean, they just, they can't do it. So we have a substance abuse and mental health crisis that is not easily solved. It's not something, well, let's pass a law. No, you can't simply do that. So uh, it's going to be here for some time. It's one of the things that really concerns me about the long-term, about the, the intermediate term is you would think the economic that market forces would signal to people to come back in the labor market, take jobs. Amazon wants to pay somebody $110,000 to drive a truck. Well, then there's going to be a line of people around the block to drive trucks. Maybe, but some of the people who should be driving trucks uh, have drug and alcohol abuse that is so substantial that they are not, we wouldn't want them behind the wheel. And it's not a minor problem. It's a major problem. Our guest is John Hood. We have one final segment coming up on Carolina Newsmakers. I want to talk about the media bias and apathy when we return with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living then has my mind. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. 
Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with John Hood, president of the John William Polk Foundation, frequent guest on our program, the author of a number of books, of which the latest is what? Uh, my latest book, my ninth book, is my second novel. It's called Forest Folk. It's a sequel to last year's novel, Mountain Folk. Uh, Mountain Folk was a historical fantasy novel that's set in colonial America. Much of it occurs in North Carolina, but not all of it. And Forest Folk picks up the story around 1800 and takes the reader through the 1830s. So it depicts the War of 1812. It depicts the beginnings of the abolition movement. And it depicts the Trail of Tears. Um, it, it has, again, just like Mountain Folk does, Forest Folk has human character, real life people who are characters in my novel, like Davy Crockett and Andrew Jackson and Juno Luska and Sojourner Truth and Ichabod Crane, who was a real person, by the way. But it also has fantasy characters. Uh, it has a giant Cherokee river dragon. You know, as as novels of this sort do, it has it has bloodthirsty frog creatures. It has a giant leech that will suck your blood. You know that kind of thing. So on that cheery note, I'm very excited to tell you that I have my second novel, Forest Folk, out. Well, as some of your other books, uh, including Jim Martin and the Rise of the North Carolina Republicans, uh, which you published in 2015, you all said that that. Those were all uh, nonfiction. They see, I'm wondering if there wasn't a little fiction in some of those too. But I'm, that's just, I'm just kidding. Well, there were some blood sucking parasites, even in the Jim Martin book. I mean, because I was writing about members of Congress. Oh, but, okay. but technically, they're not dragons, you know, okay. giant monsters okay. that, that we know so of. John, I did want to talk to you about uh, the media and how we're getting our news and information. We've talked about this several times before, but it's getting to be of increasing concern to me of how people are, are basically watching the media that they agree with to begin with and not necessarily getting the holistic look at an issue. And of course that creates bias. And then the other concern I've got is what I'm seeing is an increasing amount of uh, I guess would be best described as just apathy. What are you seeing these days? I'm seeing both of those things. And the latter is somewhat reducing the former. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, this is somewhat due to the fact that we had such a high profile presidential election in 2020, and then we had COVID and we had all these exciting events. And so things like ratings for the major cable news channels were really high. And they're not anymore. They've fallen. Uh, there's was somewhat of a recovery for, for Ukraine war coverage. But I think that in the long term, the sort of shouting match television that dominated uh, the, the news coverage for the politically engaged uh, is declining. I think people have gotten tired of that. Now, some of them are becoming apathetic. They're saying, well, I don't No one ever. Nothing ever seems to get any better. Politicians promise and it never happens. It's kind of entertaining. And then the, the show gets kind of old and I don't want to watch the fourth season of the Donald Trump show or the Joe Biden show or whatever it is. Uh, so there is some apathy. I also, though, think some people are, in fact, turning more towards state and local affairs. We're seeing that in a number of places around the country where people are really engaged in local issues. So 
what's being taught in our schools. Uh, how come it costs so much to build housing? And no one can seem to find an affordable house. Why is there traffic all the time? So there's a little bit focused turning back towards state and local affairs, which I really like, and less of a focus on Congress, which I really like. <laughs> um, but I, what I don't like is the extent to which people are just checking out. Now, some of it is because in the aftermath of COVID, which was a horrible experience, people are trying to enjoy life for a while, and I don't blame them. Uh, they don't like the gas prices. They don't like inflation. They're worried about these things. But they're also trying to sort of take the trips they didn't take and do the things with their kids they didn't get a chance to do. So there's a lot of focus internal on households and families and communities. And I don't think we should be greatly unnerved by that, even if it means they're not focused on congressional primaries as much as they might have been in the past. I, that, that does not greatly concern me. What concerns me is that when we get to the general election, uh, will, in fact, folks who are dis disaffected with politics as it's currently practiced, who really want members of Congress or members of the legislature, Democrats and Republicans, to find a more constructive way to argue with each other. If those voters just tune out and stay home, then we're not going to get anything better. So I, I hope that even if they're not so fixated on politics, that they're not, you know, may not be watching their eight o'clock at night cable news shows anymore, which is perfectly fine with me because that was mostly a waste of time. But I hope that they do re-engage when election time comes because we need, we need, to, we need to pick and support and re-elect leaders who are grown-ups and who tend to the matters that governments can tend to, which aren't very many, but are important, and otherwise leave us alone. That's at least my take on things. John, we, our company is doing a good bit of research right now. One of the things we're finding out is that uh, as far as news coverage, people are not so interested in the event. For example, let's say Congress passes a new law on taxes. They really don't care what the vote was. They don't really care about uh, who supported it, who didn't support it. Uh, they don't care much about the dialogue. What they want to know is, okay, how does this affect me? That's what we're finding out, uh, that there doesn't seem to be uh, any uh, apathy with regard to personal needs. People want to know whatever is happening, how does it affect me, whether it's in health, uh, pocketbook issues, or government issues. Would you agree with that? Yes. I'm not sure that that is a radical change. I, I well remember studies that when I was reading uh, for papers that I was writing in journalism school in the 1980s, where they were surveying newspaper readers and asking them questions. And a lot of it was basically give me news I can use as opposed yeah. to some abstract stuff. So I, I'm not sure this is genuinely new. I do think that the worldwide wrestling match version of politics that has become so uh, dominant in some media channels it turns a, regular people off. It turns some people on, of course, but they're a pretty small segment of the population who really want to consume that sort of screaming match, wrestling match stuff all the time. Most people really aren't interested in that. They're sort of intrigued as they drive by the traffic accident, but then they're ready to get on down the road to, to the house. They don't want to spend all day, you know, looking at the traffic accident. And so I think news organizations, radio, TV, all everybody's involved in media in order to sustain and engage people need to be thinking about this. What, what is a person in my neighborhood 
care about this story I'm putting together. Because if they don't care about it, they're probably not going to listen to it. Um, and just because I care about it doesn't mean my audience cares about it. And I, I've been writing a syndicated column in North Carolina uh, for several dozen newspapers. I've been writing it since 1986. And I constantly have to fight my own tendencies. I will want to write about something that interests me. And you really, as a writer, you have to be interested in your subject or your, your copy is going to be boring. But if I'm just, I mean, if I was writing, you know, column after column about the origins of, you know, epic fantasy or, you know, the how, how wonderful it was when there were radio dramas that depicted, you know, various slices of life in the 1940s. I mean, I, I'm very interested in that, but I don't think that's what my readers want to read about. And so I've really got to think about what do readers want to know? In the case of inflation, do they want to read a, or hear an elaborate discussion of different schools of thought about monetary policy? Probably not. But it may be helpful to talk about inflation in terms of too much money chasing too few goods. So maybe what we need to do is have less money floating around and we need to make it easier to, to make goods and services. Now, I think that is putting inflation in, a, in the, the, the causes of inflation, the possible remedies to inflation in terms that people can can really dig their teeth into. John, as you look at, uh, we've got about two and a half minutes left in this program. If you're looking ahead now for the next uh, month, of course, the primary election will be in the news. The Ukrainian situation will be in the news, but uh, I, I'm afraid if it's extended that people are going to begin getting bored with that. But what else should we be watching for that will have an effect on uh, uh, the elections in the fall? What are the big headlines that you see uh, that we should be watching and listening for and uh, seeing what we can do about learning about during the next uh, uh, two to three months? I think you put your finger on the two issues that will still be at the top, which is inflation and concerns about the economic future. And I do think the war in Ukraine and, and the broader foreign policy challenges that America faces will be number two. But I also think people are concerned about education, the quality of education, what's being taught in classrooms. That is still a very, very high profile issue for lots of voters. And I also think immigration is an issue that lots of people care about. Healthcare is a perennial. People do care about that issue. I, I don't feel right now that it is uh, acute. People uh, are looking at the healthcare issues as, as acute as they see inflation, which is not typically in their mind like medical services, but things like gasoline prices and, and food prices and things like that. I think it's inflation. I think it's Ukraine and America standing in the world. I think it's in, immigration. I think it's education. I think those are the key ones. And if you look at what what voters are, or what uh, candidates are advertising, those are the issues they're advertising if they're interested in the fall elections. Well, the supply chain and the, uh, as you said, the issues that that uh, are side effects of what that's causing. Uh, and uh, you can see it when you go to the get go to the pump to fill up your car when you go to the grocery store to yeah. buy milk. I mean, these are things that are very much directly in people's lives every day. It's not theoretical. Yeah. It's very practical. It's directly affecting them and they know it. Yeah. And as you said earlier, I think people are still very tired of the restrictions we had during the COVID period. And uh, that's not gone away completely. As a matter of fact, there may be a, 
a little wave of that coming back in. Uh, and, uh, and it'll be unpopular. Uh, I mean, the, the attempt to yeah. reimpose ma mask mandates and stuff, I, I think that the politicians in both parties, Democrats who used to be more in favor, I think they know that, that the impatience with that is too high now. Uh, yeah. So they're probably not going to come back in with heavy lockdowns. Yeah. Well, interesting. And John, thank you so much for sharing with us. I don't have a, quite enough time. You've got time for your word of the day before we leave. You usually leave me with a word that I have no idea in the world what it means. So I know that's uh, the dust at the bottom of, of, of the reason you, you uh, invite me, the decision rule. The what? Okay, now what does that mean exactly? Very quickly. It's a criterion. <laughs> okay. All right. See, I, I have a, a word of the day from John Hood each time. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. And if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com. And uh, there are all of the programs we've had on in the past with John are also archived, so you can go back and listen to some of those. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week on the same group of stations. So until next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.